In the 1980s, I remember working on a surgical ward where the senior physician would advise us to give patients a couple of bags of donated blood to pet them up after surgery. It was actually called the House Red. It was thought of as a benign tonic. Blood at that time was tested for hepatitis B, but it turns out this only accounted for up to half of all cases of hepatitis that occurred after blood transfusion. The other half was due to a mysterious hepatitis, not hepatitis A or hepatitis B. They even called it non-A, non-B hepatitis. This was a virus that scientists knew existed but could not isolate. What's more, this virus remains active in people's livers. For one in 10 of those people, hepatitis C can cause liver cirrhosis or severe scarring after 10 years or so. A third go on to develop liver cancer. Alongside people who received blood transfusions, cases of this mystery virus were rising most rapidly among people who injected drugs. In 1989, the virus was finally identified as hepatitis C. Just two years ago, in 2020, Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, Harvey Alter, Michael Horton, and Charles Rice were awarded a Nobel Prize for their contributions to the discovery and characterization of the virus. Of hepatitis C virus. Two thirds of people carrying hepatitis C don't know they have it. That's predicted to be almost 40 million people worldwide. With effective treatments now available, it's more important than ever that all of these people with the virus are found. You might think that the leading cause for needing a liver transplantation has been a result of alcohol consumption, but over the last 35 years, it was hepatitis C. In fact, it's gone from being the most common reason for liver transplantation in the US to the third now. But today, this progress may be being reversed. This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. Today we'll be exploring the remarkable story of hepatitis C, from a nameless mystery to a virus that's curable over 95% of the time. Joining me in conversation are... My name is Rachel Halford. I am the CEO of the Hepatitis C Trust, a UK national patient organisation delivering peer services. I'm also the regional board member of the World Hepatitis Alliance, which is a global organisation supporting patient organisations. I'm Graham Foster. I'm the Professor of Hepatology at Queen Mary University of London. I consult at Bart's Health and I look after patients with chronic viral hepatitis I'm also the National Clinical Lead for the Hepatitis C Elimination Programme in England. Before we start, our reporter Yassine Latumba went out onto the streets of London to ask people what they know about hepatitis. Not much, to be quite honest. And uh, what do you understand about the long-term effects of hepatitis? I know it's quite uh, debilitating, is it? If I'm honest, I don't know much about hepatitis. 
All I know is that one guy from my high school got hepatitis, I think, and um, he bloated up real, really big. And I don't know why. I think it's to do with the liver, but that's it. I'm not even sure if it's a curable disease or an incurable disease. I'm not sure if you could be prescribed any medicine that can cure hepatitis entirely. I'm pretty sure we, we should have medicine that could help reduce the symptoms of it. My mom had it, but I don't know too much about it, to be fair. I think that was in the level, right? Is that in the level? I can't, I can't. Honestly, that's as much as I know. Graham, does any of that surprise you? No, I'm afraid very few people understand that liver disease is a heterogeneous condition. Most people assume that anyone with anything wrong with their liver is a drinker. So liver disease in the public's mind is focused on alcohol and viral hepatitis and other causes of liver damage are very poorly understood. And Rachel, did it surprise you at all? No, it doesn't surprise me. It saddens me greatly that there is such a lack of awareness, um, but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. So what we can tell is there's still a lot of work to do, but where we're up to today, I think it's, it's such an amazing success story, going from a virus that had no name 35 years ago, that I'd like to go back in time to appreciate just how far we've come and how much we've learned. So, um, Rachel, you're now chief exec of an organisation with 120 people working on the reduction of hepatitis C. Can you describe your own story? Yeah, of course. So I was diagnosed with hepatitis C in 1998, and that was having a history of substance misuse for more than 22 years where really my life had collided. I decided or I'd been forced to decide not to use drugs anymore. And once I stopped, I made a decision to have a hepatitis C test, well, actually to have an HIV test. And the hepatitis C test came along with it. Um, my main concern, my primary concern was that I didn't have HIV and having hepatitis C really didn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, when the nurse told me, she said, you're clear, you haven't got HIV, but you've got hepatitis C and don't worry, you'll die of something else first. Over the next few years, I had the other tests, which was a biopsy at that time, and they found the genotype of my hepatitis C. But over the next few years, I noticed that I had a lot of really strange symptoms, which I wasn't sure whether they were a consequence of the hepatitis C or what I'd done to my own body through using drugs extensively. My legs would swell a lot. I'd get itchy skin. Um, I'd bruise really easily. And I'd always had problems with my stomach. And at the time, I was never really sure whether that was hepatitis C or that was just a consequence of, you know, the abuse that I'd put my own body through. Graham, what might have been happening in Rachel's liver at that time? I think what's very interesting is to compare people with hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And hepatitis B is another virus that affects the liver, but most patients are truly asymptomatic. But most people with hepatitis C have a plethora of symptoms, exactly as Rachel's described. And if you sit in a clinic and you see people with hepatitis C and hepatitis B, what strikes you is how sick people with hepatitis C are. And that tells us that this is not related to the inflammation in the liver. There's something else going on. And we've now done a lot of work looking at hepatitis C's impact on the brain. And what is very clear is that people with hepatitis C have slightly abnormal magnetic resonance spectroscopy in the brain. So if you look very carefully at brain tissue from people with hepatitis C, it's a little bit abnormal in a rather non-specific fashion. 
We know that people have increased fatigability, poor recovery times, and I'm sure that the irritable bowel symptoms, the muscle symptoms, the joint pains that people with hepatitis suffer are entirely due to the virus and its effect on the immune system. So this is a very potent infection that stirs up all sorts of immunological responses and leads to this plethora of symptoms. What is striking is that now that we can treat hepatitis C, patients will come into my clinic and say, I know the virus is gone, I feel better. And I say, what do you mean you know it's gone? And they say, I know it's gone, I just feel the difference. And in those very, very few patients who relapse and the virus returns, people will come into the clinic and say, I know it's back. And I say, what do you mean you know it's back? And they're always right. So people feel this virus within their system and they're very well aware of how devastating it can be. Uh, Rachel, you're smiling there. That rings true to you. Absolutely. In 2007, I was contacted by my hospital to access treatment. And I did the old treatment, which no longer exists, interferon and ribavirin. And when I did my treatment, I didn't associate any of the way in which my brain wouldn't work. I didn't ever associate that as a consequence of the hepatitis C. But after a year of doing the interferon treatment, when I did clear the virus eventually, the difference in my cognitive function was enormous. My memory, it was incredible. I had no idea that hepatitis C had had such an impact on my brain. Foggy brain is what people call it because everything's just not quite right. But yet significant difference. Quite incredible. Really incredible, actually. Yeah. Graham, Rachel had really quite blockbuster generic treatment at that time. If she hadn't had that treatment, what would have happened with her liver? We know that hepatitis C is a slowly progressive virus in terms of liver damage. But what's becoming increasingly clear is that once you've incubated the virus for 20 or so years, the virus really does start to accelerate. And what we're starting to see are patients infected 30, 40 years ago who are really getting into trouble with cirrhosis, with liver cancer. The tragedy is that if we find hepatitis C early and we eliminate the virus, the liver disease stops progressing and the cancer risk disappears. But once the liver already has cirrhosis, I'm afraid the risk of liver cancer continues even when we clear the virus. So one of my real drivers at the moment is to find everyone who's had a past history of injection drug use 30, 40 years ago and get them treated, get them cured before they get cirrhosis and before they run into the risk of liver cancer. So you've got this virus in the liver causing damage over many, many years. How is that virus avoiding the immune system response? So hepatitis C is a highly polymorphic virus with a very high mutation rate. And we know that the virus produces billions of viral particles per day, of which every single one has a point mutation within its genome. We're all now used to thinking about viral mutations with COVID. And if you think that over a few months, a few variants of COVID appear, in someone with hepatitis C, every day, thousands of new variants are forming. And as we know from our COVID experience, new viruses are very good at evading the immune system. So our immune systems are trying to hit a very, very fast moving target. In addition to this high replication rate, this high mutation rate, the hepatitis C virus encodes proteins that damage the body's ability to respond. So there are inhibitors of the interferon system, and interferons are a very powerful immune response. There are inhibitors of the 
immunological response to viruses. So hepatitis C is a very, very smart pathogen. It's very fast moving and it's got an awful lot of ammunition. There are, of course, some patients who do manage to clear the virus. And those patients who clear the virus have particular immune systems that seem to be very highly tuned. There's a particular mutation in a gene called IL-28 that seems to predispose to clearing hepatitis C. So although the virus can get around 80% of people's immunity, there are a handful of people out there who manage to evade the virus defences and they can get in there and kill it so the virus doesn't take root. Thank you. Rachel talked about having that original treatment, the interferon and the ribivirin, but now treatments have changed rapidly. Now, I understand hepatitis C was not actually found and isolated until 1989. And Rachel mentioned she'd had her genotype found. Now, the Human Genome Project only started in 1990, and that was 1999, was it, you were treated, Rachel? 1998, I was tested. And you had your genotype from then? I mean, that was incredibly forward-thinking, wasn't it, Graham, to genetic type the hepatitis C at that stage. What do you think was driving that? Nobody else was doing that, were they? I think the hepatitis C virus was probably the first or one of the earlier viruses to be attacked genetically. And it was the right virus at the right time because we had genome sequencing, but we couldn't do very long bits of DNA. So we couldn't begin to sequence the whole millions of human bases. But hepatitis C is only about 10,000 bases long. So 10,000 base pairs that need to be analysed. And that was well within the range of the sequencing technologies. So we had the technology, we had an interesting new virus, and very quickly people started to play with it. And Peter Simmons, working up in Scotland, was one of the drivers for genetic analysis for hepatitis C. And he very quickly recognised that there were different strains, and they were different geographies. So people from the Indian subcontinent had genotype 3, people from America tended to have genotype 1. A lot of the viruses started to mix up, but by and large, if you go to different parts of the world, they'll have their own unique type of hepatitis C. England, of course, because of its wonderful geographical and genetic diversity, has more viral strains than anything else. So I see in my clinic most of the viral strains, whereas people in America tend to see 90% genotype 1. And that genotyping gave you a prediction about how well people would respond to different treatments. Can you tell us a bit about the different treatment phases while the scientists were looking at the genetic molecular makeup of hepatitis C virus? When I started treating patients with hepatitis C, we used interferon, an injectable cytokine, and that really had a whole plethora of side effects and cured about 10 to 20% of patients. We quickly worked out that if we added a second drug, ribavirin, to it, that would double the response rates to nearly 40%. And then we discovered that that doubled and trebled the side effect profile. Once we'd started using interferon and ribavirin, we learned that different strains responded differently. So genotype 2 and 3 were quite sensitive to interferon and ribavirin, whereas genotype 1 certainly wasn't. So there was a huge focus to find a better treatment for genotype 1. And that led to another generation of tablet-based treatments, the protease inhibitors. And we stuck them together with interferon and ribavirin and said, isn't it wonderful? We can cure 70% of people. And we said that and the patient said, please don't give me that horrible treatment. It really was very unpleasant with a whole range of new side effects. 
People got very significant itching, skin problems, their immune systems were damaged. And we very quickly realized this wasn't the way forward. And the breakthrough came, to be honest, from a German physician, Ralf Bartenschlager. And Rolf was the person who worked out how to grow hepatitis C in the laboratory. He developed the Replicon. And Rolf was very altruistic. He put it in the public domain. He didn't make any money from it. A various scientist in America, Charlie Rice, took it up, made his system a little bit better. And Charlie eventually won the Nobel Prize. But for me, the star turn in the hepatitis C story was Ralph Bartenschlager, who was the first person to crack the replication of hepatitis C and put it in the public domain. And that allowed the drug companies to start working on hepatitis C in a much more detailed fashion. And very quickly, they came up with these wonderful new drugs that we use today. And the transformation really happened very quickly. Once the drug companies were given a replication model, they tested their drug libraries, they came up with molecules, and they got them onto the market, and we got rid of interferon. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. So by 2016, you had an oral treatment that had 95 to 99% success rate, but you had the challenge of finding people who you said had either non-specific symptoms or no symptoms at all. So how did you find that first batch of people in the first three years? Rachel, you were part of this story then, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there was a catalogue of people on clinicians' books. So there were a lot of people that had already been diagnosed. There was a real push and a fight, to be honest. I mean, I think in terms of the hepatitis C trust, I joined, the new treatments had already come along and there was a little bit of a fight so that people who were using drugs could access it. Because I think it's really important to say that 90% of people who are affected by hepatitis C that have hepatitis C are people who inject drugs. It's where the biggest prevalence is. So there were already a lot of people diagnosed. So I think initially in the first few years, it was very easy to find people. Today is a different story because a lot of those kind of what you call the low-hanging fruit have been treated. And now, as we are further down the road, it's where are the remaining people? And this is the trickier part. Graham and Rachel, you wrote a blog in 2019 and you called that first phase as a walk and now you want to gallop. Um, what have you been doing? I think Rachel's absolutely right that we're past the stage of finding the easy to find people. What we've done in England is move out into providing treatment in addiction services where people who use drugs are to be found and they're very often infected with hepatitis C and it's very often easy to treat patients. That's not sadly the situation everywhere in the world. Certainly in America, it's not terribly easy to deliver treatment in addiction settings. And that sadly has led to very high rates of infection and ongoing transmission in America that really is something that needs looking at very quickly. And America, I'm afraid I use as an example of what happens if you don't engage with people who use drugs. The answer is you see an explosion in people with hepatitis C and then young women get infected and they infect their babies. And what America is seeing now is a surge in young babies infected with hepatitis C as a consequence of women not being identified and offered treatment in a setting that they choose. So America, I'm afraid, has particular difficulties. Just on that, that was an early win, wasn't it, in the UK, where you got the policy changed so that you could treat people who were actively using drugs. Why were people not wanting to prevent what Graham's just explained to us? Because they're using drugs, basically, and the stigma that goes alongside that. 
It's an inequality. It's people who sit outside healthcare systems generally. If somebody is using drugs, then they, they don't have, in the eyes of some, the right to have access to health, etc. But they do. You know, it is a human right, a basic human right to have access to healthcare. And whether you're using drugs or not should never be a reason to not be treated. Somebody is a really heavy drinker and they need to be treated with a hepatitis C treatment. Then maybe you need to look at is there any contraindications, etc., or is it going to cause any damage? But essentially, for someone who's using drugs, it actually will improve their well-being. All the people, in fact, that work for the Hepatitis C Trust have either been affected by substance misuse, criminal justice and hepatitis C. And many of those people we supported as patients. They then became volunteers and then they turned their lives around and now employed by us. There is a huge impact when somebody who's using drugs or somebody's caught up in that world has access to healthcare you know, because it's just so important. It's discrimination, basically. If somebody's not being treated because they're using drugs, it's, it's quite simply discrimination. So it's not because they thought they're reinfecting themselves. It's not that. No. No. I, I think, Hillary and Rachel, the answer is exactly as Rachel said. This is pure discrimination. And there's a lot of pseudoscience bolted around it. Back in the early days, people said interferon was too hard for people using drugs. Well, we were treating people with interferon, ribavirin, and the protease inhibitors, the most side effect pro medication in injection drug services without problems, because we just said we're going to do this. Then we had the argument that people were going to reinfect themselves. Well, people may or may not reinfect themselves. That doesn't mean that you stop treating someone with diabetes because they're likely to have a cream bun and that might make the insulin less effective. You offer people treatment. And the reason I'm very confident this is pure discrimination is that, as Rachel's pointed out, when you expose doctors to people who've come out of drug use, their attitudes change. And one of the most remarkable findings that we did when we looked at peers, and peers are people that the Hepatitis C Trust provide who have lived experience of drug use and hepatitis C. And when we provided them to clinicians to help them find patients, Within days of them starting, we saw an increase in the number of drug users who were treated. And that's simply because it switches attitudes. When you stop seeing someone as a drug user and see them as a person who at this stage of their life is using drugs, the world changes. And that really, for me, is a tragedy that we're still discriminating against people who use drugs. I often say to people, let's take drug user and just change the word for perhaps Jew or black person and then see if that sentence you've just said makes sense. Are you comfortable saying black people shouldn't be treated for hepatitis C, but you're comfortable saying a drug user shouldn't be treated? And I think once people understand that this is pure discrimination, then attitudes change and we can start to make progress in eliminating hep C. Okay. And how hopeful are you and when do you think you will eliminate hepatitis C? I think in England, I'm very confident that over the next few years, we will move from a programme where hepatitis C is a major problem to an area where it's a minor problem. And I think elimination is defined as reducing the rate of infection to below the level where it's a public health hazard, which actually is a rather meaningless phrase. For me, elimination is where we stop rushing out, finding people with hepatitis C, and we set up maintenance services for the odd person who becomes infected. And I think it's really important that we understand that eliminating hepatitis C doesn't mean we stop. It means we get it to a low level, and then we keep it down at that level. 
And we've seen with COVID, for example, that if you take your foot completely off the brake, then the virus will take over again. So I think we need to challenge our assumption that elimination means we walk away and say we're moving from large numbers of infected people that need constant attention to a small number that need a little bit of help here and there. I just want to add on quickly, one of the things about us reaching elimination is it's not going to happen alone. We also, alongside that, need to do some work around harm reduction. We need to make sure that there is enough needle and syringe provision, because whilst we can find people who are in drug services, there are a lot of people that don't access drug services. And that harm reduction message needs to be really clear and out there. People who use drugs, they are going to use drugs. People are always going to use drugs, but there needs to be provision available in terms of needle and syringe. Um, Really important. Yeah. Very strongly support Rachel's comments on needle exchange. And she's absolutely right that if you don't provide adequate equipment and adequate needle exchange, hepatitis C will spread. And sadly, America is a very good example of what happens if you don't make needle exchange provision and methadone available to people with drug addiction problems. Uh, I'm afraid you make things worse, not better. Because hepatitis C rates are increasing there, aren't they? And going down here, is that right? In the UK, we're seeing dramatic reductions in the number of people with hepatitis C. In America, sadly, it is still increasing. And a particular concern is it's increasing in young people. And those young people, I'm afraid, are spreading the virus. And many young women are infecting their children. So the American approach to needle exchange, which is to criminalise drug use, really hasn't worked. And I think it's very important that we reiterate the message that hepatitis C is a preventable disease provided you make drug users part of the society that we live in, provide them with the equipment they need, and simply hepatitis C will melt away. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with Graham. I think that ultimately it is a really stigmatised disease. When I was diagnosed, if I went to the dentist, I had to be the last person on the list because the dentist didn't know about hepatitis and they thought that I was dirty, basically. I think it's about the acknowledgement that people who use drugs whether you're using them or have used them, are human beings who need to be heard because the symptoms are real. And Rachel, some of those aren't people who've been injecting drugs. Uh, They are people, say, who've had blood transfusions way back in the 80s. Do you have any recent examples of people calling through to your helpline? We do indeed. And I think it's really important to note that whilst the largest prevalence can be found in people who inject drugs, absolutely, there are other cohorts. So there are cohorts, for example, which were infected through infected blood or blood products. So prior to 1992, blood products weren't screened. We have a massive inquiry that's happening in England at the moment. I think by and large, and Graham will back me up on this, people who were given blood products have been found. However, there are a cohort of people that were given blood that don't know that they've got hepatitis C. And on a monthly basis on our helpline, we are still receiving calls from one or two people who have recently been diagnosed. They're in their 60s. They've not been a drug user. And actually, they maybe had some blood when they had an operation. And that's actually really shocking. And I think part of this takes us back to the lack of awareness around hepatitis C. You know, it's really important that we raise awareness and that general testing happens, build it into day-to-day operations of health, just as naturally as you go to a GP, if they're going to give you a test, they can have a hep C test. A&E have a hep C test. Maternity have a hep. I think it's really important. Then we will be picking up other people. 
Rachel just mentioned dental treatment and potential transmission with medical procedures. Uh, what's happening about that in the UK, US and around the world? Um, Graham? I think nowadays in the UK and most of the developed world, medical procedures are with absolutely sterile equipment and the risk of transmission is almost nil. Tragically, that is still not the case in many parts of the world. I have a a big research interest in hepatitis C in Pakistan, for example. And in parts of Pakistan outside Karachi, the prevalence is 10%. So one in 10 people are infected and they've all been infected from medical procedures from needles used for immunisation that weren't properly sterilised and that has transmitted the virus to the children. So that sadly is still going on. So they're reusing needles? If you're a child in Pakistan and receiving injections, you will very often receive them from a non-medically qualified prescriber and they will inject with a needle that they have used on multiple children before. And until we can get safe needle disposal in Pakistan, One of the most useful tricks that's been introduced in Pakistan is simply a guillotine that cuts needles in half and stops doctors reusing them. And that will stop the transmission. So we've got an awful long way to go in many parts of the world to stopping hepatitis C transmission. And I'm afraid it's the doctors and medical profession that are very culpable and very much responsible for this. We need to do better with single use needles. Uh, Thank you both for that. Just some final thoughts. We've mentioned COVID a couple of times in this. What do you think the lessons are that we can learn from the hepatitis C story for managing COVID and long COVID going forward? Graham? I, I think it's probably, I'm afraid, going to be the other way around, that there's an awful lot of research now on long COVID. And I hope that that research will give us insights into why our hepatitis C patients have been so challenged and had so many symptoms. Uh, I think we have rather neglected the necessary research into the symptoms associated with hepatitis C. A lot of people were very disparaging about the symptoms. I remember when we first published a paper years ago on hepatitis C associated symptoms, quite a lot of people spoke to me and said, you're talking nonsense. They come to you because they're tired. And that's where you pick up the hepatitis C. It's not the hepatitis C causing the tiredness. I think that attitude has now changed and COVID has helped that enormously. So I think that COVID will help us deal with hepatitis C, sadly not the other way around. So we have a story of two parts. We have an incredible level of science and application of science to a newly found virus. And now we have the long tail of tackling the inequalities, I think, that Rachel talked about. So, Rachel Halford, Professor Graham Foster, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about moving towards the eradication of viral hepatitis on medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again at the end of August when we'll discuss vaccine hesitancy and how we should communicate the science around immunisation. I'm Dr Hilary Geit and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today.